You might recall, beloved listeners, when Mode magazine challenged Australian Vogue as the most influential of fashion journals and in an act of great cruelty, they decreed me the worst dressed man in Australia three years running. You can imagine how deeply wounded I was, but uh, clearly I've never paid a great deal of attention to my clothing, let alone what it's made of. But then a hefty 500-page book lands on our desk and its title could only pique one's interest, Fabric, the Hidden History of the Material World. And its author, Victoria Finlay, has travelled around that world unravelling our relationship with cloth. Victoria is a British journalist extraordinaire with a background in social anthropology and she's written for a multitude of venerable uh, publications including The Independent, The Smithsonian Magazine and uh, The South China Morning Post. She's also written uh, acclaimed books including Jewels, A Secret History and Colour Travels Through the Paint Box. And we are delighted that Victoria can join us from her home in Bath in the UK. Victoria, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Now, there's a story about you in Moscow, which seems as good a place to start as any. Yeah, it was. Um, it's what I often thought back to as I wrote this book. I was. Um, I was a rookie journalist. I was at the South China Morning Post. In fact, I was at the Hong Kong Standard in Hong Kong, um, and suddenly M- Moscow was opening up, and I got sent there for the first anniversary at the time of the first anniversary of the communist. Um, communist some day and I was in well Red Square was closed I was in the nearby Manezhnaya Square there were thousands of people we, it was cold it was snowing I had this um, this this old Nikon one of the old pre-digital things and I was kind of holding it to, to, to me to keep it warm because the batteries were going to go and we thought that something was going to happen on one side we thought there'd be speeches and then we turned and then the the whole square, the whole half of the square cleared. There were soldiers on um, the soldiers holding us back. I dipped under and went to see what was happening. I found that I was the only journalist in this in this great square. And towards me were coming these older people. I probably wouldn't think of them as older people now, but anyway, I thought of them as older people then. They were they were people in their sixties and seventies and probably eighties, and they'd all been serving men and women in this in the forces, and. I had this great zoom lens and the battery was working. So I looked through this zoom lens and I, there was a sense that everything had let them down. They'd fought for this country. They'd fought for this. They, they couldn't even buy bread anymore. They were, they were marching against what had happened to them. And I focused in on the fabric of their of their sleeves, and it was thread. It was threadbare. It was almost like hand sewn. It seemed so so betrayed and somehow that sense of what was happening to their lives at the end when there was no money for them for even to buy food was somehow summed up in those frayed cuffs and I thought gosh fabric is not just about the sort of the beautiful or the or or, it's also it tells a story and I think that um, it's ever since then really throughout my journalism career I've looked at that story and sometimes fabric has told it. 
Now, that poignant observation of yours leads you to uh, look at silk, linen and tweed, and we'll come to that in a moment. But I want to begin by asking you about bark cloth. I'd never heard of it. I um, Doing anthropology, I'd heard of it, but I never quite understood what it was. In fact, don't you think bark cloth, it sounds, it's obviously cloth made of bark. That sounds really scratchy and itchy and quite unpleasant and um, quite unpleasant to wear or, or, or touch. And as I started researching this book, I thought, what is it actually? And I found that it's it's that there's there are several bark cloth trees, but the main one is like the paper bark. It's it's really thin. If you if you closed your your thumb and your middle finger together, you'd probably get the width of these trees when they're cut down. So they're really thin. And the bark is kind of well, it's sort of wrongly named because it's not the outer bark that you think about. It's the bit inside, and that that bit inside is where the sap gets pulled up the tree. So it's really the living bit of the tree. That's the bit, and it that is what they the, you, you, they cut it and they pull it out, and it's this amazing cloth that comes from nature. I, it's it's complete. Um, needs to be beaten out a bit, but it's complete. Later, you visited the uh, Mycin and Indigenous people in PNG, and most of the 3,000-strong population live in villages, and they, in fact, farm this sort of bark. Yes, there's bark cloth all around the Pacific, but the my, but the my. The Mycin, who are a, a Papua New Guinean tribe who trade their bark cloth with other tribes. Still, they, tra- they trade for a pot, they trade for canoes, um, they trade for, um, for jewels and feathers and shells. So it's still an active process for them. Um, and they wear the bark cloth during their rituals. But yes, they, they say. They say that they have the best species of bark cloth tree. <laughs> they call it woozy. And they're really anxious that nobody should steal the saplings and start kind of, you know, taking away their monopoly of the best kind of bark cloth. They were kind um, enough to let you <laughs> they were kind enough to let you have a try to oh, make some brilliant. yourself. Yeah, we lived there for two two weeks. In the morning, um, just at before dawn, you can hear the ping of the bark cloth because it comes off if you imagine stripping the a, a, a tree it comes comes out the sort of the width of i don't know thumb to thumb to third finger that kind of width and they need to beat it out it's like it's like beating out um it's like if you were beating up pastry or something at like that beating it out so it kind of gets wider and wider um and they showed me how to do that by beating it, I wasn't very good. Um, but also, they not very good at all. But also, they paint it. So there's two processes of painting it, and they use for they they had they use two colours, black and a kind of red. And they um, the the black is made from this really fermented paint. I mean, it smells like it smells like silage. And I remember I remember kind of going oh <laughs> with my little with my little notebook, you know, oh what's that? And I kind of reached down to smell it, and then. Suddenly, it just sort of splashed all over me, and it was this revolting silence-like thing. I mean, honestly, we all fell about laughing. But, but, um, but it's actually also a sacred. It's sacred and it's secular. So it's times that the design, the black 
um, the black outlines really um, are done um, in a kind of meditation, and then the red is painted in between the spaces, and that's a that's a that's a friendship activity. Women will often do it together. Let's go now from the highlands of PNG to the Outer Hebrides. Tell me the wonderful story about uh, Harris Tweed. That was, I mean, before I start a book, I always sit down and sort of think, I, I free think about all the questions that I've got. And one of them was like, what is Harris Tweed? I mean, obviously I've heard of it. My, you know, my, my, I'm sure my grandparents wore it. It felt like an old fashioned thing to me. And I thought I probably won't like it, but it's there. I'll go and have a look. I went in winter, which um, somebody had told me was the making months, which was quite, quite good. And, um, and I suppose my question was, why is Tweed from Harris, which is um, an Outer Hebrides um, island. Why is it precious? Why is it special? Why is it protected? Um, what is good about it? And I, I, it's an extraordinary story of the Outer Hebrides. Actually, um, Harris Tweed is not only made on Harris, it's also made on Lewis and, and a few other um, Outer Hebrides islands. But fundamentally, when the um, we had the Enclosure Acts, which meant that effectively people who were working the land were thrown off the land and that's why so many scots so many um so, so many went to canada so many went to australia um because they were thrown off the land by landlords and often it was to put sheep on that land so all of these things were happening people were really poor and there was a sense that perhaps one of the ways to help women in the communities where they really didn't have very much was to help them improve and market their skills at weaving. So they would, in the beginning, they would hand spin the wool and then they would um, they would weave it on their own weaving, um, like their own looms, and then it was sold to estates. So that's what that's what happens. But now it's still happening because you've still got a sort of protected status and it's still woven on, they're called handlooms. They're often not operated by feet, but they're on handlooms, non-mechanized non in people's sheds or in people's, in people's houses. It's astonishing. Now, Victoria, there's also an unpleasant pong associated with it. There always was. It was sort of an unpleasant point because um, fulling, which is so when when you're weaving on 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 these looms, often it's quite loose. So you need to sort of almost felt it, and they would often felt it or full it or walk it um, with with urine, with super stale urine, and the best urine apparently was of uh, was the the wee of prepubescent boys. Um, so they would. So they I, would I, I would have thought that it, was the case, and obviously it would have this kind of smell of peat <laughs> and urine and everything, and it was it was sort of celebrated so that in Glasgow when they were trying to when they when they realized that there was a bit of money to be made they would do fake Harris tweed but they would have a kind of peat house where they would sort of I don't know spray the smell um, falsely and put some felt false smoke in there to try and make you make you believe that you were smelling but also in the walking process which is where and the 
which is where we actually get the word walk because you you it's it's process you're moving the the cloth along there's a story that um that Samuel Johnson went in 1776 with his friend James Boswell and they went up to Skye and they experienced this walking and there was this songs and he said oh he, he like me he had his little notebook out you know what are these songs and they said oh the songs are generally unmeaning and so that's what I put in the first edition and in the second edition I had I talked to a radio producer who said actually they're not they're really rude <laughs> and so so clearly they were singing these really naughty songs full of full of um, full of and um, and they didn't tell him that. Victoria, I understand that uh, new arrivals are invited to uh, use a chamber pot and make a donation. <laughs> Especially if they're young boys. Yes, indeed, they they were. There were there were pots. There were pots all over. In fact, there were pots all over the north of England. Um, <laughs> in when when um, when walking and um, and dying needed needed we that we'd often get it from Newcastle. Believe it or not, we'd get our we from Newcastle. I'm talking to author Victoria Finlay about her beaut book, Fabric: The Hidden Meaning of the Material World. Now let's look at one of the hidden meanings of fabric. Tell me why sackcloth came to be associated with penance. Sack comes from a Semitic word for goat's hair and um, not just ordinary goat's hair, but the old sort of the black common goats that you still find in, in Turkey. They have really hard back hair and um, that hair was really good was good for, it was strong it was kind of oily it was great for um, for tents for think of the biblical tents um, and it was good for sailors uh, it's quite waterproof and it was itchy as anything <laughs> so if so if you were grieving I mean the, you know, in, in the Bible when um, when when Joseph seems to be dead um, his father wears sackcloth because of that itch um, when Job goes through all his penances there's an extraordinary story in the second book of Kings which I hadn't read until I was looking for sackcloth references but um there's there's fast there's famine in the city and the king goes in disguise and he walks among his people and um he finds just the most horrendous stories about babies dying and and he wears and he, he takes his cloak off and he shows that he's wearing sackcloth it's a signal for wearing um, for, for for being compassionate, but also it's really uncomfortable apparently. Um, so 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 it, so if you imagine that you're really going through grief, you know, actually really serious, awful grief, which is so complex and so layered, and then you you have the simplicity almost of this sort of physical serious discomfort. It it's it's perhaps even easing for the mind to have it. I, I, went on, I went online and I, saw, I sort of thought, I wonder whether people actually still wear sackcloth for that kind of thing. And, and I got all sorts of search engines, I must say. But, but I, I eventually wrote to a company to because I was curious as to who was making this penance sackcloth for people, which sounded um, interesting. And uh, so I, I, um, I wrote to them and I got, got an answer that they were made, that the, this particular company, they made them in England out of Hessian. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's still being done, apparently. You also uh, visited a prison where sackcloth featured. 
I live near Bath in um, in Somerset, and close to me is Shepton Mallet Prison, which was, until it closed about 10 years ago, it was the oldest prison in the country. And um, 1820, 1820, all the laws that, that meant that it was... Um, a, a death penalty or transportation um, for certain quite small um, acts of, of small criminal acts uh, was changed. So suddenly the the population exploded and they built these sort of Georgian Regency style wings and there was an exercise yard. And so men could exercise in this yard in front of the governor's house, but they weren't allowed to see the governor's house. <laughs> so they had to wear sackcloth like like hessian like like imagine the old-fashioned kind of pre-plastic sacking and you've got a hood of that and you have to walk anti-clockwise you can't even see anybody <laughs> else you just you can just see your feet so you don't trip and um yeah so i was astonished at that picture of loneliness i think loneliness in in contemplation well we've, ju we've just got time to talk a bit about pashmina now as i pointed out in introducing you i am no beau brummel he was of course a great <laughs> fashion influencer and he liked pashmina didn't he well he did apparently he had a cashmere um jacket i mean apparently he was a dapper dresser but he didn't kind of wear new things he wore very high quality again and again and apparently every morning he would wear this very beautiful um um waistcoat cut from cut from a cashmere pashmina shawl an extremely expensive one <laughs> the emperor josephine um well, the f first of all she saw one in 1799 she just started she was a divorcee from Martinique, and she, uh, this, and, and her husband, to be Napoleon Bonaparte, was um, was a was an army officer in Egypt, and she was very excited because she knew that the fashion in Egypt was was lovely, and she was very excited at this package that arrived. And she opened it up, and it was like two or three boring brown shawls. And and she wrote to her son, who was serving alongside Napoleon, who was 18, and she said, I've got the shawls. They're very ugly. <laughs> I don't think the fashion will take off. But anyway, she sort of fell in love with them. They were very, they, they fit, perfectly fitted the sort of the post-revolution, quite simple Roman classical clothes that women were wearing. And you could drape it around. And um, she'd walk, wear three or four hundred of them. And there was, I mean, there were stories that you could really see the sort of the tension with the domestic violence, tension with Napoleon. Napoleon, that he would sometimes say, you're, you're loving these shores more than you're loving me, and he'd tear them up and throw them on the fire, and she'd just buy more. <laughs> you tell a wonderful story of artificial silk, how what silkworms did was replicated artificially, but I wonder, after learning about the almost magical process of crafting backcloth and tweed, barkcloth and tweed, do you feel we've lost a lot since artificial fabrics arrived? It's really complicated, isn't it? Because artificial fabrics, which is of two varieties, really, two main varieties. One is made like the silkworm makes its silk, which is basically um, uh, jumbling together with acid uh, cellulose, which is like from wood or from ba bamboo or that kind of stuff. And you jumble it together, you, you reduce it, and then you 
exude it like the silkworm. Um, so there's that, which is what we call viscose or rayon. That's that's the kind of fiber that you have, which is which can be thrown away. And then there's the nylons, the polyesters, which make up more than half of the fabrics made, and they can't be thrown away. We have obviously so much more, and we have seven billion people, but we make so much fabric cheap fabric that just gets thrown away. In fact, a lot of it gets thrown away before it's even bought or worn or loved or or enjoyed. Um, so we have more. Sometimes, don't you think, by having more, you have less. And I, I, I feel that that's one of the problems, that, of course, everybody must have clothes and everybody must have lovely clothes, but we have so much. I didn't realise that artificial fabrics can be made of, well, bamboo or eucalyptus, so it may, in fact, be recyclable. Oh, that is recyclable. So the the kind of the problem, if the you know, is with those, is that the process of, like, say, you take eucalyptus. Actually, I think the eucalyptus is quite um, is it t- tends to be quite a more ecological process. But the old in the old days, um the old artificial silk mills, they were known. You could tell in France in the 19th century who worked at the mill because um, because they they were blue and their babies died quickly. So there was there was a there's a lot of poison and there has been a lot of poison and I'm sure that there still is a lot of poison in the makings of some viscose. So for viscose and rayon, which is the same thing, um, all marketing, uh, the problem really is not so much the getting rid of it's the huge quantity of this stuff that uses a lot of a lot of acid and sometimes that acid is not always regulated. There is different kinds of process. With that warning note, I must uh, take my leave from you, Victoria. I've been talking to Victoria Finlay, British journalist and author of some wonderful books, including now Fabric, The Hidden History of the Material World, published by Profile Books. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.